0: Thank <laughs> you. Everybody? It's so good to be here. Karen and I have been uh, linked with the Kingsgate family uh, for hundreds of years now, really. And uh, every time we come here, we say it's a delight. That can sound like that's what speakers always say, but it genuinely is a treat uh, to be with you. And uh, thank you so much for having us. Greetings uh, not only to uh, the centre here in Peterborough, but to friends joining us in London and Cambridge and uh, Leicester, and of course in Cafe Church as well, and watching online. It's great to have you with us. And we're in this series, God's Plan, for your well being. It's been a great series, and you say, Jeff, what do you mean? It's been great. You haven't been here, so how do you know? Well, Kay and I have listened to all five of the previous messages in preparation for this weekend. So I can assuredly tell you it's a great series. If you've missed any of it, then stop by the Kingsgate uh, website. You can download it. Week one, Pastor Dave talked to us about uh, God's plan. He talked about these six interrelated tanks that we need to keep refueled. Each has an impact on the others and we need each other. And then in the second week, Pastor Dave really challenged us to know where we are in terms of our well-being and rather beautifully reminded us of the amazing faithful love of God for us. In the third week, David Robinson had a panel up here and there was a lot of practical advice about a physical well-being, some practical helps there. Week four, Roger Bretherton talked about emotional well-being. He talked about four practices that lead to peace, gratitude, hope, endurance, and kindness. And and then week five, spiritual well-being. Pastor Dave reminded us that whatever else is going on in our lives, there is a God-shaped vacuum, if you will, that only God can fill. That's because we are created to walk with and know God. Wherever you are uh, watching today, the truth is that we're not really interested in mere religion. In fact, religion is frankly rather boring. We're interested in a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you agree with that? And we know that he is the answer to that vacuum in our lives. And so spiritual well-being. And so this weekend, we come to think about relational wellness, relational wellness. And uh, here's what's going on. Elijah this incredible Old Testament character who had done some amazing things he he called down fire from heaven he multiplied oil he he raised the dead even anyone anyone raised the dead this week just think back Monday Tuesday waking your teenage son up in the morning doesn't count (laughs) although it almost takes as much faith let's face it and so uh, there's been this gunfight at the O.K. Corral, figuratively speaking, on Mount Carmel, and this, this clash between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Uh, and uh, Elijah's probably thinking, revival's in the land. This is, this is astonishing. Um, but as Roger Bretherton reminded us in his message, often uh, after a, a great height, there comes a great, depth, a great falling. And Jezebel, the queen, sends Elijah uh, a death threat. And here's what the response is. 1 Kings 19, a passage that we've been looking at throughout this series. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. And then later on in the chapter, we read this, verse 15. Then the Lord told him, Go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazel to be king of Aram, then anoint Jehu, the grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. Uh, repeatedly over the years, I have confessed Um, that Kay, my wife and I, are frequently lost. We have been internationally lost. Um, We have um, a lady who tries to help us in each of our phones. Uh, Her name is Siri, and um, we consult her repeatedly. And Kay's got this voice in the map uh, of her phone. My, my, My phone, it has this sort of posh, slightly irritated British lady, who says, turn around when possible. And you can almost see her rolling her eyes when she says that. And, and Kay has this um, blonde Australian surfer dude with a six-pack who used to be in a boy band. And I'm really not quite sure. But despite the fact that uh, we have the uh, helpers in these two voices, we are frequently uh, lost and we, uh, we have a really good marriage, but we occasionally experience navigational tension. I therefore, when I heard the Pastor Dave's first message, he uh, confessed that uh, he and Karen uh, were hiking Dunkery Beacon, and um, they got lost. And uh, I have to tell you, I was slightly thrilled about that. Um, Not least because they'd done it before and had got lost before also. And so this was actually a repeat performance. And then my heart sang a little more when I discovered that, uh, Pastor Dave confessed, a little marital tension along the way. It wasn't a malicious rejoicing, just an acknowledgement that they can be as idiotic as I. This week, uh, I was at Colorado State University in uh, Fort Collins, where I live. I went to, uh, to an event there. And uh, 25,000 students in that campus, a city within a city. I was late for the event, and when I parked my car, I didn't uh, note where I had parked it. And I ran into the event feeling fr- uh, somewhat flustered because I was late. And I came out of the wrong side of the building, headed north in the parking area instead of south. There are thousands of cars, and now I cannot find my car. Oh, what rejoicing filled my heart. And I prayed the prayer you pray when you can't find your car. You might want to write this down. It goes like this. Show me the car. And for 20 minutes, I wandered around praying. I uh, thought about calling roadside assistance, you know, but that would have been useless because they'd have said, so where's your car? And I'd say, well, that's the point. I don't know. And I muttered and um, things like, oh, hallelujah, that sort of thing. And finally, after about... 30 minutes, I finally discovered my car again. But I can remember that feeling, ladies and gentlemen, of being overwhelmed, being bewildered. What do I do? Do I call Uber? But if I call Uber, then I will have left my car here and the parking ticket's going to run out and I'll get clamped and then I'll get executed and it's all going wrong. I felt completely lost. Here is a man who Who seems lost. And his name is Elijah. And that's a surprise because we normally associate Elijah with strength. I am so glad that when God paints portraits, Word portraits of the great heroes of the Bible. He doesn't paint portraits of perfect fluorescent glow-in-the-dark saints who always get it right because they're, they're human beings. I'm a human being. You're a human being. I'd, I didn't wake up this morning, do a triple backflip out of bed, catching my tambourine as I flew through the air. I landed in my cowboy boots and the angel Gabriel handed me a cup of tea. Elijah's a remarkable guy. In fact, the ancient rabbis taught that he must have been an angel. So remarkable were the exploits that he did. But James, in the New Testament, in his letter, drives a truck through that idea, and he says Elijah was a man just like us. No angel. And now he's bewildered. He's feeling lost. He's confused. He's he's not praying any great prayers. He's, He's praying some short prayers. Now, some short prayers are good, Some of them are good. You often find them located on Christian refrigerators. What is a Christian refrigerator, I hear you ask? It's a refrigerator belonging to a Christian. And they're often decorated with verses and short prayers like the prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. That's a good one. Or Anne Lamont's short prayer. Help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, amen. I like that one. But here's one you're not likely to find on a Christian refrigerator. Lord, I have had enough, kill me now, amen. (laughs) Now, why had he had enough? Well, for one thing, he was living at a difficult time. By the way, every generation think, think that things are getting worse. It's just the human condition. Don't know what the world's coming to, it's terrible. We all think it's always bad. In Israel, it was really bad. There'd been a leadership crisis in the nation for 60 years. Israel had been rotting in spiritual and moral decay. The golden age of King David and King Solomon had finished, and now six kings had come and gone in a 58-year period. And now King number seven, his name was Ahab, he's worse than the previous six. And his wife is the infamous Jezebel. And now the nation is infested with idol worship, which included child sacrifice. Those who faithfully worshipped the true God were now being persecuted. And there's this Jezebel woman. The New Bible Dictionary, surely written by a British person, says that Jezebel was a forceful and domineering personality. (laughs) That's a bit like saying the atom bomb's a bit loud. She is the Cruella de Vil of the Old Testament, a nasty piece of work. So everything is difficult, but not only that, Elijah feels and is spent. He is empty, empty. I don't know whether this is a game that men play more than women, but it's called the challenge of the fuel gauge the petrol gauge. How many know what I'm talking about? Just, some of you are actually nudging each other, even as I speak of this. You know what happens, ladies? Um, The needle is getting closer to the E, uh, but the bloke says, no, no, we can make it. No, no, we can do this. Like you're in a, a competition with that piece of machinery. And now because of computer technology, The car will actually tell you its range. It will tell you, you have 40 miles left. And you say to your spouse, if you have a spouse, you say, we have 40 miles left. And they say, it's okay, because it's only 38 miles to get home. (laughs) And the petrol station is half a mile around the corner, so we can do this. It's like a, a challenge. And then there's a Christian version of this game, where we say, oh Lord... Would you multiply the petrol in our tank? You who turned water into wine at Cana, could you do the same thing with unleaded? And sometimes, and I've done this, we we even pray that the Lord will provide a petrol station where there was none. What? So these sheep are grazing happily in a deserted field when suddenly, poof, test goes hallelujah instead of stopping to fill the tank we play these games so what can we learn about relational well-being as we dig a little deeper well first of all let's know this we have a famine of solitude we have a famine of solitude and an epidemic of isolation Elijah he dismissed his servant you see, solitude is a choice to be alone, and that can be very positive, and we need more of it because the world is filled with noise. Just yesterday, Kay and I were volunteered by our daughter and son in law to be helpers at the party, the birthday party of our eight year old grandson. Twelve eight year old boys in a room for two hours. Biblical prophecy was being fulfilled because it was like the Battle of Armageddon. And about every 20 minutes, I had to retreat to a small room with a lock and just breathe, just solitude and peace. That's a good thing. But isolation is a sense of aloneness, loneliness that we can feel, even if we're around people. Isolation. It's different from solitude. Um, I travel a lot. And so in the last couple of weeks, I've been in Colorado. Then I went to Oregon to speak to a leaders conference. And then I went back to Colorado. Then I flew to London. And I I don't mind the flying, you know, the sort of cramped feeling and food lovingly prepared by a demonized chef. I don't mind that too much. It's the airports that freak me out. Because airports are emotional black holes. And I feel it because airports are filled with people who are only there because they want to be somewhere else. And the sense of emotional relational vacuum is palpable. There's a lot of, a lot of isolation and loneliness. 2017 Mr. Zuckerberg of Facebook Facebook fame said that Facebook were going to fix this for us, but it's not really happened. I know, I looked on Facebook this morning to find out what my friends had had for breakfast. (laughs) Famous best-selling books have been written about the disintegration of community, like Bowling Alone, the Collapse and Revival of Community by Robert Putnam, People are less likely to be involved with each other. In The Vanishing Neighbour by Mark Dukerman, he says the people next door have become strangers. In 1970, people were asked if they ever socialised with a neighbour. In 1970, 20% said never. In the year 2000, 30% said never. We're getting lonelier and lonelier. And we have all this technology because 80% of the world on the internet and 86% having a cell phone and yet we're disconnected. T.S. Eliot said, television is a technology that enables millions of people to laugh at a joke at the same time and yet remain lonely. And we've got diverse interests. We used to have three TV channels, now we've got thousands of them. And even neighbourly expectations have changed. In the 1950s, a good neighbour was a person who came by with a pie to welcome you when you moved in. Now, a good neighbour is someone who leaves you alone. (laughs) Because if if they show up, they might be weird. Weird. But we are designed for relational connection and wellness. When we see a TV show, it's antique now, like Friends, with a bunch of good-looking New Yorkers jumping around in a fountain, and it's happy and smiley. Or the even older TV program, Cheers, which begins with the opening song. Sometimes you want to go where everyone knows your name, and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see troubles are all the same. You want to go where everyone knows your name. Name, and we do. People say that people sometimes criticize the church for singing. They say, No one sings anymore. Rubbish. Go to a football match and listen to what they're singing that you'll never walk alone. We have a famine of solitude, an epidemic of isolation. And that creates other issues. That's the second thing. Fear is amplified when we walk alone. Fear is amplified when we walk alone. Scripture says Elijah was afraid. He dismissed his servant and now his sense of fear grows. And there's a lot that we fear. We fear life. We fear death. We fear what we know. We fear what we don't know. we we're robbed of our waking, we're robbed of our sleeping, we're afraid of intimacy and rejection and heights and clowns and falling and spiders and fear. Jan Martel in Life of Pi said, Fear, its, own, it's life's only true opponent. And there's a lot of fear around at the moment, isn't there? I mean, this is not a party political statement, remain or leave, but it seems like there's a lot of fear going on at the moment, real. Terror and trepidation. I know because I've been in America and the Queen just keeps calling me and it's just so, I'm busy. Last week she called and she said, Jeff, can you come back? Can you help sort this out? And I said, listen, Lizzie, Lizzie. I'm busy. I've got to be at Kingsgate this weekend. I've got things to do. She said, oh, I understand. Say hi. Say hi. She says hi. Hi. I'm looking at some of you going, really? Is he, did he, did, is he making that up? Yes, he's making that up. Sorry to rob you of your Downton Abbey moment. But you see, we're afraid. We're afraid. Oh, I want to say this don't be afraid. Not because we know how all this is going to pan out, but because we know that we know Jesus. And the worst thing that can happen to us is we die. No one's going to get out of here alive, but Jesus is on the throne. You don't need to be afraid. See, that really cheered you up. (laughs) Elijah's afraid. This woman sends him a death threat. She doesn't have to send an assassin because fear works better. And he's always been in control. He needs a drought to get the attention of a king. He's got it. Multiply some oil, done. Raise a dead boy, done. Call down fire from heaven, sure. Death threat from the palace, afraid. And he panics and he runs and he's confused. Look at this. He runs for his life and he prays for death. That's pretty stupid. Again, he's isolated. Isolation creates emptiness. Isolation amplifies fear. So what does, what does God do? Well, here's the third thing. Some of God's antidotes, breakfast and friendship. Some of God's antidotes, breakfast and friendship. You see, first of all, um, God sent an angel to cook him breakfast. I love that. It's a bit Monty Python, but I love that, that there is an angel commissioned to cook breakfast. That is, that is that angel's job. I love that. And, and I've, I've heard preachers say, and why, we ask ourselves, congregation, why did the Lord provide breakfast for this prophet? What is the meaning and significance of this? Well, here's the reason. He was hungry. <laughs> I know that's deep and feel free to write it down. That's why I'm really glad that uh, David Robinson had a panel of experts up here talking about physical well-being. And you, you might think, it's a bit weird, isn't it, doing that in a church setting? No, it's absolutely right. Because out the physical affects everything about us. And some of us are so spiritual, and it was like, I'm feeling somewhat heavy, I believe the devil is camping in my bathroom. No, just get a good night's sleep and... Eat a little bit healthier and demons will tremble that's really good that that facility the online facility of resources about well-being wonderful but it was breakfast and friendship see friendship was part of the deal if you study the apostle paul's writings you will see that he frequently described friendships that were refreshing to him when I, when I became a Christian, we used to sing this ridiculous song and I refused to sing it anymore. It was, he is all I need. He is all I, Jesus is all I need. That is utter tosh. Jesus is not all I need. He's designed me to need people. He's, how can one member of the body say to another, I have no need of you in Gethsemane. Jesus was not all Jesus needed. He needed his friends as he prayed. I told you about this before, but uh, it fits this message so perfectly. My, when my dad passed away, um, I discovered something about friendship. It's always a bit weird talking about this because um, it feels like I'm laughing at death. And in a way, I am because as Christians, we are, in a sense, able to do that. Uh, my dad was always a bit of a joker. So when he died, he died twice and came back before finally dying the third time just to keep us guessing. So I'm standing at his bedside holding his hand and my mum's the other side of the bed and the lovely nurse says, he's gone. And we went, oh. And she said, nope. (laughs) He's back. (laughs) Went, oh, okay. So we're there another couple of minutes and then she said, um, yes, yes. He's gone. No, no, he's back. It's like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back. The third time, he's gone, yes, yes, he's gone. Ring, ring, at that moment the phone rang on the bedside table, the phone rang and I thought it was Jesus. (laughs) Just calling to let you know we're just checking dad in he's made it, all is well, we've upgraded him. Well it was Jesus but it was my friend Chris being Jesus to me at that moment. He was in Canada and he's driving along a road and he felt like God spoke to him and said pull the car over and get hold of Jeff, he needs you now. He made a series of phone calls, finally discovered I was at the hospital. God put through to me. He said, Jeff, what's going on? I've had this experience. God told me you needed me. I said, Chris, my dad just died three times 30 seconds ago. He said, that's of course why I'm calling. I'm with you. I'm for you. I love you. Jeannie and I will be on the plane to be with you. See, in that moment, I needed Jesus. I needed Kay. I needed my mum. I needed Chris and Jeannie. We need each other. That's why I'm thrilled to hear that across the center, many more people have signed up to be part of small groups for this wellness series. That's beautiful, not just because of education, but because that's the discipling way to rub shoulders and share hearts with fellow disciples, breakfast and friendship. But let me say, let's dig a little deeper and say, let's identify the power of godly friendship. The power of godly friendship. This man stops in from time to time. He's a holy man. That's referring to Elisha. You see, Elisha was the person that God, selected for Elijah to be his servant successor and friend and he helped Elijah to see things straightly we don't see things straight French novelist the Nainin said we don't see things as they are but as we are study Elijah's comments and he was palpably wrong or patently wrong in all kinds of ways. He says, I've zealously served God. He's, he's right there. He says, the Israelites have rejected their covenant. They've just renewed it on Carmel, actually. He says, they've torn down your altars. No, they just rebuilt a new one and the fire of the Lord fell. He says, I'm the only one left. No, pal, there are 7,000 left. You see, our feelings lie and our friends can help us to see straight. We've got a car parked out there. We've had it for a long time. It's got 120,000 miles on it. I am blue-black, colorblind, blue-black. We'd had the car about seven years. We're driving along and I turned to Kay and I said, I like this car, but I I don't like the interior. I, I wish it wasn't blue. I wish it was black. And she said, darling, since this car's creation, it has always had a black interior. I have been resentful towards the interior of my car for seven years because I wasn't seeing straight. I saw what I saw, but it wasn't the true picture. Our friends can help us to see straight. But that leads me to my last point, and that is I think we need to discover godly friendship. Godly friendship and I want to unpack that in this last point because Elisha was a friend who served sacrificially was faithfully present and spoke truth lovingly you see he wasn't just a friend he was a godly friend and he served Elijah faithfully in the background for 10 years and he was present with Elijah and there were times when he said things to Elijah that Elijah didn't want to hear he was a godly friend now uh, when, when i became a christian um, i said goodbye to a lot of my non-christian friends and to be honest i needed to break circles that were toxic I, uh, uh, as, as a 16 year old I was pretty confused. If I went to a party, I was the first person drunk at every party. I'd fill a pint glass up with a mixture of whiskey and gin and vodka and whatever I could find. I'd be drunk immediately. I'd make a fool of myself and then I'd go home and kneel before a porcelain altar in worship. Some of you understand what I mean. And I needed to break some of those circles and if you're in a social setting where drug abuse or alcohol abuse or toxic behavior is the norm if you want to follow Jesus it might be that you need to break some of the patterns of those friendships but I am not saying I'm not saying oh you can't have any friends who are not Christians that's ridiculous that's ghetto thinking, we are called to be in the world and connect with our world. But I do think we need to know the power of godly friendships. But I've been thinking about this. Who's my crew? Who's my crew? In Colorado, where I live, we have these 14,000 foot high mountains. They're called Fourteeners. Fourteeners, 14,000 foot high. And I'd I'd like to tell you that um, I have climbed, um, I'm not proud about this, but I've climbed 17 of those 14ers. I'd like to tell you that. I haven't. I've got a book about it. But I've been thinking, if I wanted to climb a 14er, I'd need to know when I was going to go, what I was going to take, and who am I going to go with. Who's my crew? How many of you think that you'd quite like to climb a mountain one day? Raise your hand if you'd quite like to do that. How many of you would prefer, you don't give a rip about mountains, you just want to sit down and eat pizza? <laughs> I see your hands. Bless you, bless you. I've been thinking about another 14er. I've been thinking about the next 14 years of my life, that 14er. You see, I'm, I'm 63 now, so 14 years from now, I am going to be older. I'm going to be 77 in 14 years from now, and that means that if I'm spared, that means that some of my friends will die. That means that some transitions will have taken place. That means that there will have been some further physical changes. Used to have long flowing hair, now a shrinking peninsula. Later, a stranded island. (laughs) So who's in my crew? God specifically said, anoint Elisha. He didn't say, get yourself some friends. It was specific. We need to know who's in our crew. We need to clarify that. Jesus had a crew, there were 12 of them, but he had an inner crew, Peter, James, and John. You know what that means? It means not only do we know need to know who to invest in as our crew we need to know who not to invest in not to be excluding or unloving or conflicting but there are some friendships that are great but they're not in a circle crew and i've been learning that recently because we can have this generic idea about friendship but some friendships are seasonal. And some friendships are built around function. Nothing wrong with that. But who's in that inner crew? And who isn't? And then why not calibrate the expectations of friendships? One of my closest friends, he's in my crew. I'm really hoping he doesn't go online and watch this. I love him dearly, but every time I talk about anything, within a few minutes, he's turned it around to talk about himself. You know. And then after 20 minutes, it's enough about me, he says. What do you think about me? <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I've decided? I decided it at 1.30 this morning, actually. I decided it's all right. It's all right. He doesn't have to change I know Jesus can change him and there's probably there's probably some stuff about me that drives him up the wall but I've decided it's all right I have recalibrated my expectations because he's in my crew so here's a takeaway who's in yours relational well-being well we're going to pray We're going to pray about our crew, as it were. But I also want to say that it's important that before we conclude today that we think about friendship that involves God. And I'd like to give an invitation for friendship. Friendship that's with God and with God's people. You can't separate the two out, actually. Sometimes I hear people say, yeah, I love Jesus, but I don't need that church thing. Oh yeah, you do. (laughs) When you get God, you get his people. That's part of the blessing and sometimes the challenge. But it's friendship. Actually, it's not just friendship. When we come to God, he calls us not just friends. He does that. But he calls us sons and daughters too. So we're going to pray. We're going to think about our crew And then perhaps we're going to think the greatest friendship of all, one with God, is that one that I even perhaps want to begin this very day.